when I was in publishing, there was this guy. He and I had graduated from college at about the same time, and we actually started in the publishing company at about the same time, and we started in the same size office. But then he got a promotion, and then he got another promotion, and I was still in my same little office, cube actually, let's not glamorize it, and he was now in a corner office with the executive furnishings. And he was placed over a a large team that was very important. And he was chosen by the CEO to take on a very special project that had been near and dear to the heart of our CEO for some time. And he'd never found just the right person to get that ball across the finish line. And he handed this guy the ball. Which meant that every quarter when we would gather and have company updates, who was it that was standing up front smiling next to the CEO? This guy. And every time that would happen, I would just inwardly kind of harumph. I'd huff a little. And it didn't help matters that this guy was actually really nice. I mean, he was charismatic. He was a natural leader. He was popular. Everybody liked this guy. And yet sometimes when I would walk by his office, I would actually wince, feel a little sick. Now, who is that person for you? That person who, when they taste success, when they are given a blessing and a a favor, it's hard for you. This sermon, for it to really work, I want you to actually select that person right now. I want you to mentally think and, and maybe picture who that is for you. Maybe it's somebody at your work like it was for me. Maybe there's this young guy at work who's a kind of a wunderkind, and uh, he's got a lot of drive. He's got a lot of talent. You can see it. And not only that, but he knows more of the sort of latest, you know, information in your field, and you can tell it's just a matter of time till he's likely to pass you by. And that freaks you out. Maybe it's, uh, for you, it's a, it's a girlfriend, and, and now that girlfriend has a guy in her life, and you'd love to be in a relationship. And it's really hard. Maybe it's something to do at church. You're, you're in a ministry or program area here at church, and there's somebody, and, and they're getting asked to sing, and, and they're getting asked to speak. And they're the ones who are being asked to teach and lead and and do things like that. And you're like, man, I've got all these talents. I've got everything that's just waiting to be tapped. And it's not being tapped. And you feel it. Who is that person in your life? Now, when you and I see someone else's success and inwardly we feel bummed, that is what is called envy. Envy. And in Christian moral teaching, it's one of the seven deadly sins because it is so destructive to our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. But you don't have to be a Christian or accept Christian moral teaching to have felt the effects of that. And you're like, man, is there any way I could have less of this in my life? Because I I feel resentful a lot. I I feel kind of angry. Sometimes I feel kind of helpless about it all. And and, And I get a little bitter. Is there a cure for envy? 
Now, I think if you and I were to ask most people, is there a cure for envy? What would you recommend? They would say, oh, sure there is. The secret is this. You become so successful in your field that there's nobody left except in the rearview mirror. You blow them all by, and then you no longer feel envy because there's nobody left to envy. They're all envying you. That's the way you deal with envy. If only that worked. Thomas DeLong, who's a professor out of Harvard Business School, he interviewed 500 people that were defined as high-need-to-achieve professionals. So you can imagine with his Harvard connections and people who are defined as high-need-to-achieve, these are our globe's best and brightest leaders, high achievers in whatever field they're in. And he sat down and interviewed these 500 people, and in over 400 of the interviews, meaning over 80% of these people, they would spontaneously, without prompting, bring up some peer, somebody in their field who they kind of was, were noticing how successful that person was being, and it made them feel a little anxious or a little upset or concerned. In fact, it was so pronounced in the interviews that DeLong gave it a name. He called it comparison obsession. Is there a cure for that? Well, I have good news this morning, which is that the cure that you and I are not able to produce on our own, there is someone who can cure. It's God with God's power. And yet I've found in working with Christians over the years that it's not always clear how we access that cure how we go about it. And so this morning, I want us to go to the scriptures and learn from a person who was exceedingly popular and then got passed by and learn from him. Would you turn to John 3 with me, please? Starting there in, in verse 22, we read that then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside, and there Jesus spent some time with them baptizing people. Now, we know from other scriptures, Jesus didn't actually do the baptizing. His disciples did. But this is a big change because until this moment, there's only been one baptizing game in town, John the Baptist. And John came up with this radical strategy from the Lord, which was not understood or accepted in that time. Yes, Israel had ceremonial cleansings, and they had, had, had ritual baptisms for pagan Gentiles who are, who are coming into the Jewish faith. But to, to go out and use baptism as a way to say, you Jewish people have to repent of what's going on for you, that was new. That was radical. That attracted attention. And John was the guy who came up with it, and he was the only one who had it. Not anymore. Verse... 23, John's still doing what he's doing. He's still baptizing. But verse 25, a debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. Now, we don't know exactly what that debate was, but we think it was this. John's disciples are saying things like, you know what? We're the originals and still the best. We're the ones who put baptism on the map. You ought to be coming to us. And this certain Jew says to them, oh, really? then why is that other new guy so popular then? So, verse 26, John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, boss, we got a problem. That man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, he's also baptizing people, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Now that is not right. He was a nobody. He was one of thousands of people who came to you for baptism. 
And nobody even knew who he was until you pointed him out, until you actually gave him some profile and some platform, and you made him who he is. And now he's stolen your strategy, and he's using it against us. And what makes it worse, where'd he get most of his leaders in his movement? Got him from us. He just lured him away. And so now we used to be it, boss. We used to be it. Everybody was coming to us, and now nobody's coming to us. And that's terrible. What are you going to do about that? Now, who is it? Who's this person that leaves you feeling passed by, threatened? They have more popularity, more relationships, more attention, more giftedness, more money, whatever it is. It seems like people are going to them, not you. It's so hard. And before we learn from John, I want to make sure that we all understand that this response from John was not easy for him. This verse mentions that later he was in prison. And when he was in prison, he was just like you or me. He started to doubt. He's like, I don't know what's going on. Is this really Jesus? And, and so he got to this the same way you and I get to this. It was very difficult. It was a, it was a, a painful movement of the soul. And, and we tend to think of John as, come on, John, this couldn't be that hard for you. In the Christmas pageant, you get this bit little part. You're the wild man with the bushy beard, and then you get off the set. And then Jesus, who's chiseled and has a blue sash, he's, Jesus always has a blue sash, and he's kind of levitating across the ground. He's obviously the star. But back then, it wasn't like that. Jesus and John were actually cousins, born almost the same time. They're the same age. So they actually probably physically looked very much alike. And John, until right now, has been the most popular person in Judea. He's the rock star to the extent that people are now coming to him and have been and saying, are you the Messiah? We think you could be the Messiah. Who else could it possibly be? You've got it all. And Jesus has only done one small miracle at this point. The only people who knew about it were the people who catered the wedding reception. Nobody else has a clue. And so if John had been like a character on House of Cards, he could have gone, don't worry about that new guy's popularity. We'll take care of that. Yeah, most people still think I'm the Messiah. I've been kind of demurring, but maybe I'll leave it a little more ambiguous in my responses from now on. He's baptizing in one location. We're going out in three. And guess what? There's some real rumors about some lack of clarity about who his father really is. We'll spread that. He'll be done. But here's what John does instead of that. Verse 27. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. So I think the the first counsel we can learn from John about how to break the back of envy in our lives is stop fighting what God is doing. See, we're all fixated on this other person and what they're doing. But John says, you know, there's a God in heaven, a sovereign God. There's a God who apportions as he wills. And there's a God who has chosen to give to that person the certain benefits, opportunities, and gifts. And he's chosen to give you certain things as well. And right now, you're fixated in your mind about what they have and what you don't. Could you get to a place where you accept what God has given them and... This is hard. Except what he hasn't given you. U.S. adults, 45% of U.S. adults say that 
their relationship with their brothers and sisters has rivalry and distance in it. And this time of year, doesn't it constellate it all for us, right? I mean, you're thinking, oh, here we go again. One more year at my sister-in-law's house. She's got the perfect house. She's got the perfect family. They've got the money to pull it all off. It's fantastic for her. Nobody's ever coming over to my house. You see? It constellates it all. But you see, right now, you're fighting her in your mind. What would it be like if you actually came into the presence of God? I, this is such a, a, a critical thing for believers that there's, there's whole chapters of the Bible devoted to this. Listen to Psalm 73, if you would. I envied the proud. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are all so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. This person is crying out to God, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Stop fighting that person in your mind and get before God and cry out like this. Lament. Use the words of Psalm 73. Because here's what happens to the psalmist. He says, verse Uh, 17, then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And suddenly when I was before God, my perspective changed. I came in all upset about that other person. That's all I was fixated on. But now I got into your sanctuary, O God, and here's what I began to see. I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? And apart from you, what could I ever desire on earth? You see, envy clouds our minds, and we forget that God's actually been good to us too. And what would it be like if if you were to accept, you know what, you're, you're so focused on how amazing that person is, that God's made you amazing. Maybe you're the second violinist. You're not the first violinist, but God's made you an amazing second violinist. Play with all your heart. You see? No, maybe you're not going to win the Boston, but do you enjoy jogging? Then jog, you know? And and, and when you come into the presence of God, your perspective opens up, and and you realize, oh, I've been fighting this person in my mind, and I actually really, my issue's been with you, God. I've been valuing all that stuff more than I've been valuing my relationship with you, and with you, I have everything I could want. I, I have the intimacy of a Savior who dies for me and loves me. I have that. And when you get there, then it frees you. And you can do the the second thing I want us to learn from John. Not only to stop fighting what God's doing, but to start facilitating what the person you envy is doing. That's what John chose to do, verse 28. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride. And he compares himself. He says, I'm just the best man. I stand around in a fancy tux, but I actually, it's not about me. It's about about him. It's about the groom and the bride. It's their wedding. It's their weekend. That's what it's about. And and I'm filled with joy at his success. Now, what an amazing analogy that John gives us. What would it be like if you were to say, okay, Lord, how could I be the best man to this person who's succeeding in a way I wish I were. Maybe that success is just pointing to a a call I have. I'm, I'm, I'm envious of something that actually I need to develop in my own life. But how could I serve them? 
How could that come about? Maybe because of the complexity of the relationship, you can't, but you can pray for them. And you go, oh yeah, but Kevin, now here's where the analogy breaks down. John is, is deferring to Jesus Christ, Messiah of the world. The person that you're asking me to, to serve and facilitate is far from that. In fact, they've got a lot of issues, which I could tell you if you had time. But you see, it works even there. I remember, uh, as many of you know, back in the 90s, Rez went through some very painful uh, splits here in the church. And the most painful came in 97, when one of our leaders left and started a church just close by here in town, and hundreds of people went with him to start this new church. And you talk about feeling stung. It hurt. It was like, man, everybody's going to them and they're the new church with the energy and excitement and everything seems to be breaking forth for them. And honestly, I come in every Sunday and I'm heartbroken at these empty seats where friends that I've known are gone. And so we had a little meeting with some leaders and we gathered around and we're like, what are we going to do about this? And what I wanted to talk about is how are we going to hurt this person for the way he's hurt us? And William, who was the pastor at that time, he said, you know what? He opened up and he read from Philippians 1 where Paul says, yeah, so people are preaching so they can make more trouble for me while I'm already in jail. Are they preaching Christ? Then I'm good with it. And William said, is he preaching Christ? I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, he's preaching Christ. He goes, I think we're okay then. Love will win out. I tell you, it just changed me. I was like, wow. It was right then and there. We stopped. We prayed for this person. Not, not angry prayers, not recrimination prayers. True, sincere, blessing prayers for him, for his family, for that church, that the word of God would go forward, that people would be fed there, that there'd be blessing on their ministry. And it was that meeting, I believe, that paved the way for a public service of reconciliation and all the healing that's flowed out from that. Friends, uh, what would happen if you were to actually say, I'm the best man, I'm the maid of honor, I'm, I'm okay with that because that's the role God's given me. I'm going to serve this person. I'm going to find a way to bless them however I can with the tools that I have. Now you go, now why would I do that? What is the possible reward for me in that? John tells us, verse 30, Jesus must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. You see, I don't love the people I envy enough that I'm willing to become less so they can become greater. That's the whole reason I envy them. I'm not willing to do that. But I do love Jesus a lot because of everything he's done for me. He's forgiven me so much and, and, and just been a presence and constant comfort and companion in my life that I'm like, oh, you mean if doing this would actually bring about greatness for Jesus, attention to Jesus, if I was willing to pull back and limit my voracious need for attention so that he could have more attention, I would be interested in that. That actually unlocks some stuff for me. I was like, I would be very interested in that. And you go, well, how would that work? Well, let me tell you. When people see you and me as Christians and they go, man, that person's envious. Do you hear that sideways comment? Do you hear that snide remark? Man, they're resentful. What's the difference? Why am I interested in that? But when they see you and me doing something so radical as to say, I'm here, I'm not worried about me succeeding, I'm worried about helping you succeed, when they see us with a genuine, only God could do this heart of submission, humility, and cooperation, they are stunned. This is not a minor miracle, friends. They're like, what just happened there? You know, there are so many great stories that come out of the Olympics, but one that has stayed with me as much as any other 
is one that maybe none of you have e- has even heard of. It happened in the U.S. Olympic trials 10 or so years ago. It was in the trial for, uh, Olympic trials for Taekwondo. And the athlete from the U.S. who was competing there is a woman named Esther Kim. Her dad was her coach. So you can imagine, with dad as coach, since she was two or three, she's doing Taekwondo. I mean, this has been her dream, her life dream. I'm going to go to the Olympics in Taekwondo. So she wins her semifinal. So now she's going up to the final. And in the final, she's going to meet her best friend, uh, an athlete named Kay Poe, who is ranked number one in the world. She has to beat Kay, her best friend, to go to the Olympics. Which sounds very difficult until you hear that Kay, in her semifinal, got thrown, injured her knee, and can now barely stand up. This is going to be a cakewalk of a final. All Esther Kim basically has to do is go out on the mat. It's over. She's going to the Olympics. And she thinks about it, and she decides she's going to forfeit so that the best athlete will go to the Olympics. And when she did that, all the media is like, what? What just happened? And they couldn't get enough mics in front of her mouth to say, what were you thinking? And she's like, well, I thought, I'm not throwing my dream away. I'm just handing it to Kay. And for the first time in my life, I I really do feel like a champion. The IOC was so blown away by this, they gave her like some sort of special sportsmanship award, and they flew her uh, on their dime to the, the Olympic Games to be there. You see, people get blown away. They're like, what was that? We make Jesus great when we will take the lesser and lower place out of love for him. And his name and his fame and his glory go forth. He becomes greater when you and I are willing to become less. So that's the choice before us, friends. Are are, are we willing to step in and and stop fighting with God and accept the, the beautiful way he's made us? And then start facilitating this person that we've been resenting. It's clear. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But let me set before you, it's a life or death choice for us. Here's why. If you and I do not do this, we go, oh, that's too hard. I, I, I can't do this. Then here's what will happen for us. We'll become sick. I really mean that. The psychologists tell us, don't they, that envy correlates very strongly with depression. It correlates strongly with becoming neurotic. It it correlates with physical illness. You'll literally become sick. And not only will you and I become sick, our churches, our families, our work teams, all of that, they get sick too. You go, oh no, I've got this envy inside my soul. Nobody even knows I have it. I mean, it's, it's, it's harmless. It's not hurting anybody. Listen, every church split that I've personally had an experience of that became a visible break started with the invisible disunity of envy in the soul. That is not a small thing. That's got to come out of there right now. But if it does, if you and I will submit to the word of God and if we'll, we'll stop fighting this person in our mind and we'll come into the sanctuary of the Lord until we finally hear, you know what, you've been good to me. Who else do I have but you? Then life breaks out. Unity comes to teams. The name of Jesus Christ becomes glorified, and he becomes greater and greater. Now, friends, as I was praying for this message, I had an intuition, I'll call it, that I just want to share with you in case it holds true. It was a sense that there's somebody here, your envy has 
has not just lasted like a month or a week or whatever. It's been years. That was the sense I had. It's been years. It's like a prison of envy. And if you will respond to the gospel this morning, if you will just set yourself on the side of the Lord, come into the sanctuary, hear his affection for you, accept the place and the position that he's given you, which is an honorable one. If you'll do that, you will break free. That prison will become uninhabited and you will walk out. Oh, how I call on you this morning. Make that step of the heart. Repent from where you've been. Come into a better place with John the Baptist where he had this tremendous freedom and joy. He's like, I'm so happy at his success because when I become less, Jesus becomes greater. Amen.